0: Let's see if that's working. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. And we're delighted that John Lurie is here to do the rounds today. He's an associate professor of medicine, of TDI, and of orthopedics. So let me tell you a little bit about John. Uh, He um, did his undergraduate work at Princeton, getting a Bachelor of Science in Geologic Engineering, went to Penn State to do his pre-medical requirements, and matriculated to Stanford's Medical School, where he got his MD degree. He then came to Dartmouth and did his internship and residency here, and was also a chief resident in medicine here. And then he went over to the VA Outcomes Fellowship, the Faculty Development Fellowship that also included training at TDI, an affiliation that he has kept through his whole professional career, uh, being very involved at at TDI. Um, He holds several administrative positions and I use a cheat sheet because some of them have acronyms that I just wanted to look at. (laughs) The easy one is that he's director of the Clinical Trials Unit at TDI and has been so since 2008. But he's co-director of the Center for Translation of Rehabilitation Engineering Advances and Technology, or Treat, and he's done that since 2010. He is also the program lead here at Dartmouth for the High Value Healthcare Collaborative, a very important role. He's also the Comparative Effectiveness and Research Design Core Director of NEPDC, which is the New England Pediatric Device Consortium, and he. Um, works with them on that unit of uh, research design and and the unit of comparative effectiveness. And important to all of us is that he's the interim section chief in hospital medicine. John is the triple threat. John has won numerous teaching awards in the Department of Medicine. John has been funded well and has participated in well-funded studies by others uh, for his entire career. And moved into the area of rehab and um, and very wonderful areas that have brought him to an area that we're going to hear about today. He's published well over a hundred papers. He is he serves on many uh, study sections for the NIH. John's been doing lots of things, and he does it quietly. That's his style. John is someone who is incredibly steadfast here. We are delighted that he's on our faculty. We're delighted for the many, many things that he does in research and teaching here through the many divisions of our One Dartmouth. And John, come tell us today uh, what we need to know in this particular area. Thank you.
1: Morning, thanks for coming out on a rainy day. Um, So I'm gonna tell you about um, this trial that some work that's been going on for about seven years, just finished up a couple weeks ago. Um, The Randomized Active Step Comparative Effectiveness Trial, which is a fall prevention, comparative effectiveness study in fall prevention in the frail elderly. Um, And it's sort of, it it continues an odd career choice of mine of studying the most mundane and unsexy things in the world. Low back pain, (laughs) falls, why I don't know. It just happens, but one of the reasons I do is because they're, although the back pain and falls and that sort of thing are mundane and not very sexy, they're really important because they really affect the lives of people and what they can do. Falls is a huge national problem. One third of older adults fall annually. There were almost 16,000 fall-related deaths in 2005 and that number is almost surely higher now. 5.8 million elders fell in the prior three months when the CDC did their fall assessment questionnaire survey a third of those falls 1.8 million Included injuries and the direct cost when they were measured in 2000 was 19 billion. That is Much higher now. We don't know exactly because no one's done that, you know recently it's also a Big local problem. Vermont has the highest rate of falls in that survey of any state in the US, 20% in the prior three months. And it has the highest age-adjusted fall mortality rate in the country. So because I was at TDI, I have to show you a map. Here's a map (laughs) of the fall adjusted death rates per 100,000 from falls across the country. You can see Vermont lit up there, New Hampshire just slightly lighter. Rhode Island sort of tries to make itself known, if you look really closely. So huge problem falls. And lots of things contributed. It's multifactorial all the time. But external perturbations, trips or slips, and by the way, when I did a paper for this, they said, well, you didn't define what a trip and a slip was. And I said, really? So I made up a definition for trips and slips. <laughs> and I put it in the paper along with a note to the editor and said, I think your readers will learn more from the f- words trip and slip than from the definitions that I just gave you. <laughs> but in general, trips are when you're walking along your foot goes forward and it decelerates quickly. Right? It can catch you catch on something. <laughs> and a slip is when your foot accelerates in the direction you wanted it to go but quicker than you thought. And most of us think about slipping backwards, but you can actually
2: slip forwards, too, or you can slip this way. But that's
1: a trip and a slip, and that <laughs> is a major cause of falls. And it's estimated to account for up to 20% of Different. So the other interesting thing about falls is you can't actually show, I'm going to show you some video, I don't have a video of somebody falling, I have a video of somebody almost falling.
2: Can you make sure your microphone's turned on, doctor? Or we're not hearing you over the video. Is the microphone turned on?
1: It is. How about up there? Is that better, right? No.
0: I'm going to stand back here?
2: Yeah. Alright.
1: Just, just for you. I wouldn't do it for anybody else. Um, so the other thing about falls that's very interesting for the sociologically minded is it's impossible to show a video of somebody falling to an audience and not have at least half the people laugh. You just can't not do it. But anyway. So, they're a big problem. And there's things that we know that help following. This is a meta-analysis that you can't really read, but that's okay. It's a forest plot, and it shows a meta-analysis of interventions, and this is, the top there is strength training, the middle box is Tai Chi, the bottom is aerobic exercise, and what you see is that all of those meta-analyses for those interventions, strength training, Tai Chi, aerobic exercise programs all favor reduced fall risk factors and so all those things are things that work and a lot of the work in Falls has been sort of studying we know stuff works and we look around and we don't do it and we do a study and said if you do something it works compared to doing nothing and then five years later people look and see we aren't doing anything and then they show that if you do something it works and then you wait five years and look, we're still not doing anything. So a lot of this is right, policy and implementation. We know fall is a big problem. We know how to identify people at risk to falls, but we don't do a very good job of then trying to reduce those things. And the key points from that meta-analysis is strength training, tai chi, aerobic exercise, improved balance and fall risks in older adults. That was from NEOA patients, which is one of the risk factors. Water-based exercise and light treatment did not improve balance outcomes. But most of those studies looked at risk factors and didn't look at falls. And that's true of a lot of the literature, because it's easier to measure the risk factors and watch them go down. And the bottom line is we know doing something is better than doing nothing, but the optimal type and frequency and duration of exercise intervention to reduce falls isn't very well known. And so this is sort of a background paper from a group of biomechanists out at the University of Chicago that were very interested in, oh, that were very interested in understanding why people fall. And because those perturbations are a major right, instigator of this, they particularly wanted to know why do some people and when they catch their foot on the curb, fall down, and other people catch their foot on the curb and don't fall down? And how can we take people who catch their foot on the curb and fall down into people who catch their foot on the curb and don't fall down? Because it's easier than saying never catch your foot on the curb, because we all do. And so they studied this. And, and the distillation of, I don't know, 15 years of work um, is that they found that when somebody trips, The biggest predictor of whether or not they're going to fall is what's happening to their trunk at the time they make their recovery. So when we catch our foot and we go off balance, right? if it's a big enough thing, we take a step and that's how we recover. And if when you get your foot down, if your trunk is still going forward, hello ground. And if by the time you get your foot down, your trunk is accelerating this way, you're most likely going to stay upright. And that's what they studied, and they did it in these gate labs, which used to be a huge, difficult thing, right? There were these big buildings, all kinds of space. That you had to have big, oh, big open space. or tracks in the ceiling so you could put people in a harness so they wouldn't hurt themselves. They'd walk along, they'd have these crazy things, these little pieces of the floor that would pop up and catch your foot. <laughs> I'm serious. This is how you do it. <clears throat> and then you'd have to have a camera that followed the person along so you could right, measure all this stuff on their body and you'd have to distract them because, right, put ropes on the ground where the thing that popped up wasn't so that they wouldn't know that the thing that popped up was where it was. And they studied like this, and they studied this for years, and they found this stuff, but they realized that this was a real hard way to do it. And so they worked on how can we do this better? And the main thing was, can you simulate this tripping on a treadmill where the person's in one place, so now you don't need a warehouse to have your gate lab. You can do it in a broom closet, right? And you can have the camera still because the person's in the same spot. And it made a lot of sense, but the question was is a jerk of the treadmill that throws you off balance the same as walking along and tripping? And so you need a very sophisticated device to simulate that, right? And you need to be able to measure stuff to check the biomechanics. And they developed this over a long period of time with NIH funding, and the the designer and it's actually in the audience today. It is incredibly complicated stuff. To to make a treadmill do what everybody designs treadmills never to do is actually hard. <laughs> right? And so they did this, and one of the things that they find, and so this is Sorry, you can't read this very well. This is a sort of a summary from their paper. But one of the things they found is that they were testing this out, right? People throw them off balance with the treadmill, the treadmill jerks. They found that the biomechanics were exactly the same. And they also found that as people were doing it, as they were testing it, you'd do it, its a little jerk and the person would sort of fall over, right? And then you'd do it again, and you'd do it again. And then all of a sudden they weren't falling over anymore, right? They were training themselves to recover. And it's like, whoa, maybe this isn't just a thing to test. Maybe this is something that actually can work. And that's one device. There's other ways of doing this, but the idea of perturbation training or task-specific training, right? So, you know, when you do balance, you, you strengthen muscles, you strengthen your core, you strengthen your legs, you work on your balance, you do This stuff, right, it's all good to be able to do that. But just doing that is a little bit like training for swimming without ever getting in a pool. At some point, you want to get in the pool and actually swim. And so this is the idea of task-specific training. And that has sort of caught on in a bunch of places. This is a meta-analysis comparing traditional balance and gait training to newer approaches most of which include this perturbation. The traditional training is these progressively difficult postures, dynamic movements, like tandem walk, or quick turns, right? And postural muscle training, standing on your heels, standing on your toes, doing all that stuff. And that's all good, right? We saw that, we know that's good. Perturbation training is where you knock their center of balance, center of mass off. And there's sort of three strategies that we typically use to right ourselves. So if you get a little bit of a perturbation, you can use an ankle strategy. So you move a little bit and you just kind of do that. You get a bigger push and you use a hip strategy where you kind of do that and balance yourself. And then if you really get a big push, that's not enough. And you got to take that step and recover. So those are the three strategies. And they you progress people through that in addition to the other stuff. And this is from a meta-analysis with the traditional balance training here. This is changing gait speed, which is a surrogate marker. It's one of the fall risk factors. And we see they all improve it, and the recent trials that include perturbation do better. Okay? And as I said, there's a lot of different ways they do that. So this is a big group up in Ontario that's been working on perturbation training for a long time, Dr. Mackey's group. and they have this incredibly sophisticated rig. You're in this little box where you can't see. The floor can move back and forth, and so they can jerk it to the side. You have this belt on, and they have cables that go in each direction. And the person behind the curtain, the Wizard of Oz here, can hook one of the cables up to this weight. And you're standing there. You can't see anything. And then all of a sudden, they hit a button. The weight drops, and you get pulled this way, or you get pulled that way, or you get pulled this way. right? and do that, and they've studied this approach. And so this is perturbation, and this is a control group, right? And what they found was that with perturbation training, you had greater reductions in the frequency of multi-step reactions, right? Where you go like this, or hitting your foot, or having to reach out and grab the handrail, right? So you could train people to control these perturbations better. Again, this is all sort of laboratory conditions, reducing risk factors, reducing, improving the biomechanics, but not the fall. So I'm a simple guy. What I want to know is, does this help people when they go home not trip over the curb and fall down and break a hip or trip in their living room or fall down the stairs? And so you have this idea. Let's try it for real, real life. Right? And that's for people that don't know that's Donna Pigeon. Best balance gate trainer, PT, probably anywhere. And in fact, when we started doing our trials, one of the one of the criticisms that we got when we were preparing it was people said, Wait a second! You're comparing this thing to Donna. You're not gonna... <laughs> the control group's going to do too well. You're never going to see a difference. And be that as it may, <laughs> so and this is sort of caught on. So that's the, this particular device. There's lots of ways to do perturbation training. That device, the active step, is the one right that was in the area, and we it's been used. So this is just to show you some of the early trials. These are almost all small, but this is using that same device in people with transferebral amputations from soldiers. This is from the early work from the Chicago group. This is the timed up and go test, right? one of the fall risk markers. And so here's a high risk group, a low risk group. And this is them before. And then they went through training sessions on this treadmill. And the high-risk group reduced their tug time from about 21 seconds to about 14. And 14 is right around the sort of cutoff threshold for high-risk that many people use. Some people use 13. This is uh, another study using a similar device. This is a split (coughs) treadmill, so there's a different tread for each foot. In Japan, usual exercise group this perturbation treadmill thing. Now this is the first one that's really looking at falls as the outcome, they followed people for a year. So fall rates, 54% in the control group, 33% in this treadmill group, 11 versus eight falls, and time until the first fall, 120 days, 147 days. None of those were statistically significant, which shouldn't be a surprise to anybody because there's 11 people in this group and 15 people in that group, right? But interesting. Okay, this is, again, from the Chicago group, same one where we saw the reduction in the tug time. And this is they had a control group, two control groups in this experimental group. The experimental group did this training on on the active step. Um, And then they took them before and they took them after into their gait lab, where they walk along and a thing pops up from the floor to trip them. And so in the control group, 32, 33% of the people when they were tripped in the lab had a fall. Second control group, 25%, when they were tripped in the lab had a fall, and none in the experimental group. Again, this is very small numbers. It's a simulation of fall risk because it's in a lab. And anytime the answer is zero, I get really nervous because it's never zero. You just didn't study enough people. And so this is Another study by the same group showing the same thing a couple of years later. And so, back in 2006, um, we applied for one of the first Synergy Pilot grants um, and got it to do a trial of this, of taking this perturbation training, putting it in the clinic, and there was one, uh, and then follow people out and see if they fell in you know, free-range human life. So the inclusion criteria, 65 and older, considered at risk to fall, and referred to PT and anyway. was done at two sites, here at DHMC and at APD. And the exclusion criteria were anybody unable to use a treadmill, people who had vertigo because they needed a different kind of intervention, and inappropriate for typical fall prevention. Right? So this is basically all comers to PT over 65. You get two kinds di- of therapy. You get standard therapy, or you get the treadmill training. And the outcome is falls. The percent of subjects with at least one fall, and we also looked at falls with injury as a separate outcome. And that seems very straightforward. I thought it was extraordinarily straightforward. Think about Clinical research is anything that's straightforward in clinical practice. When you want to try to study it, it's not straightforward. What is a fall? How do you define a fall? What counts as a fall and what doesn't count as a fall? So in the category of defining things that everybody knows the meaning of, but it still needs a definition, a fall is a person unintentionally coming to rest on the ground or another lower level. That's the definition from the CDC. And that's what I mean. An injury, we define injury after a fall as limiting their regular activities for at least a day or going to see the doctor, how we counted injury. And there's different ways you can do that. But there's lots of questions that go beyond this of what counts as a fall, right? Do you count any fall, no matter what the person's doing, right? If they fall while they're ice skating, is that a fall? Well, yes, it's a fall, but is it a fall you want to, right? Because I don't know about you guys, but ice skating definition includes a fall for me. (laughs) Skiing by definition includes a fall for me. And by the way, it's like not like you can, oh it's this elder people you can rule that out like there's a lot of 70, 80 year olds skiing in New Hampshire and Vermont. And so how do you count that stuff? You fall out of bed, is that a fall? Yes it's a fall, but is it a fall that we care about because we're trying to improve their balance when they're standing up, not when they're rolling over in bed. So it's very complicated even though it shouldn't be. We had a bunch of secondary outcomes, the Berg Balance Measure, Dynamic Gait Index, timed Up and Go test. Those are all physical therapists, has you do things, watches you and grades, how well you do. The activity-specific balance confidence is a questionnaire. I ask people how confident they feel doing different activities, that they can do it without falling. And we know that balance confidence is associated with the risk of falling. If you feel like you're gonna fall, you're at higher risk to fall. And so this is the pilot. We had 83 people that were screened. 10 of them were ineligible. Left 73 that were eligible. Nine declined to participate. Three because they really wanted to try the new thing. (laughs) And six because they were scared of the new thing. Oh, Sorry, there's a little typo in there, but 31 got randomized to the active step, 33 randomized to standard treatment, and then five withdrew before treatment in the active step group. So 26 got the treatment, 33 got the standard treatment. Nobody withdrew in the first three months, so we had 26 out of 31 in the active step group, and 33 out of 33 in the standard group at the three-month follow-up in this small pilot. And this is the intervention. So the standard group, and this is the active step group, they all got strengthening and flexibility. They all got static and dynamic balance, this stuff. They all got mobility training. And then only the active step group got on the active step. So there's a couple things to mention about the design of this pilot. I'll mention it now. It's exactly the same in, in the main study that I'm going to tell you about in a few minutes. In terms of a comparative effectiveness study, the design principles that went into this, are important because they're not the typical randomized trial. And they have some strengths, and that's why we did them, and they have some weaknesses, which is the way everything does. So we screened 83 people and we found 73 that were eligible because we excluded almost nobody. If you were being sent to PT for fall and balance training, you were part of it. This was not a highly select group of people with very specific reason what they were on stage. This was all comers, because that's who I cared about. I want to know, people coming to PT, what's the right way to treat them? And not selecting out little groups where I think the effect of this is going to be the highest. So that's one. The second is right, that everybody's getting stent right, the best we can do. Which means the control group's gonna do well. And you know what? Good. They should do well. I want them to do well. Because I wanna know if this is better. If it's not better, I don't care. Right? And the third thing is here in the description of the active step training, it says progressively challenging anterior, posterior, lateral surface perturbations, step response to perturbation, walking recovered to perturbation. We didn't tell the therapists. Do four sessions, 15 minutes each. Everybody gets on it. Everybody does. We didn't tell them anything. We trained them on the machine, we showed them how to use it. And we said, This is what you guys do for a living. Do it. Whatever's the best for the patient, do it. <clears throat> One session, and that's enough for them, that's enough. They got to be on it every day, put them on it every day. Do what you want to do. Because that's how it's going to be used. Right? If this shows that this thing works and it becomes common, right? therapists aren't going to follow some sheet and say, oh, you have to be on it for eight minutes today, Mrs. Jones. They're going to do what they always do. They're going to adjust the treatment to the patient and do what they think is best. So why not test it that way in the outcome? right? In the typical randomized trial paradigm, you find a very select group of people who you think has the highest rate, highest likelihood of responding to the thing you're going to do, You give it to them in a very controlled environment. Maximize the chance of showing that the thing works. And then you send it out and have people use it. And then 10 years later, somebody decides to see if it works as it's applied in practice. That's too slow for me. That's just, right? Check it out of the gate. Use it the way it's going to be used and see if it works. And then if it works, then we can figure out exactly the refinements on how to do it. And no, we're not wasting our time. Anyway, a lot of people think that's the wrong way to do it, but that's how we did it. So this is the point in the presentation where people are like, I kind of understand what he's talking about, but I, God, I wish I could see what this thing actually does, because it's not entirely clear to me. So I brought you some viral videos. <laughs> so we found a frail elder who is willing to sign a HIPAA <coughs> waiver and get on the machine. And so this is a trip. So to simulate a trip on the treadmill, what the belt does is it jerks backwards as if you're catching your foot. right? It throws the center of mass forward. And you can do that to different degrees. And so if you remember that picture about strategies, right? that's an ankle strategy. So it's a small perturbation jerks back a little bit, and the frail elderly elder in the picture is able to right themselves a little bit of hip, but mostly in the ankle. And now here's a bigger perturbation where that doesn't work, and you can decide whether you think that's a recovery step or a fall. And then a slip, the belt goes in the other direction, so your feet go out forward, and there's an ankle strategy for a small perturbation. Right, a little bit of arm, and then a bigger perturbation where you need more recovery, right? So there's trips, there's slips, this is a step where the the belt starts and then keeps going and so you have to make a recovery and then start walking. Our frail elder is doing okay. (laughs) By the way, Just for those that are worried about this, sort of in practice, right? You're in a harness. You you cannot fall. You can get suspended. (laughs) But you can't fall. You can't hurt yourself, right? It's a very safe environment. And then this is the most complex thing where the treadmill is going at walking speed and then starts perturbing in the middle of walking. (laughs) As I said, it's impossible to watch one of these videos and not laugh for most people. (laughs) And then this is a slip in the middle of walking, which by the way is really hard. All right, so that's what it's doing. So that's what we had the rest of the frail elders doing in the study. So this was a small pilot, right? There were, there were 30 in one group, 26 in the other group. We had no expectation that we were going to see a reduction in falls, right? Because a pilot is not just a little baby study that your hope turns out OK. It's a study designed to help you do a big study by getting information that you need to do the big study. and so. This is part of the information that we need. We put these machines in these two practices. We sent people there. We randomized them. And we told the therapist, use it. So the questions were, would they use it? Can they use it? How does it affect right, the workflow in the clinic? So on average, this is the active step group, surface perturbation, treadmill training. So average PT sessions were six. And we didn't tell them how many treatments. We didn't tell them treat them for a month. We didn't tell them to treat them until so they're done. So six in the active step group, 7.3 in the standard group, not significantly different at these numbers. The range was from one treatment to 19 in this group and three to 17. And the average duration, session duration, 44 minutes in that group, 43 minutes in that group. So this told us, and then, right, obviously this is data. The real data is sitting down with a therapist and saying, how's it going? (laughs) They liked it. They thought, right, they, they, they thought it was... A useful part of their armamentarium. They were able to put it into their sort of routine. They get them on for some period of time and they do their other stuff. And so the workflow worked. We could get it into the clinic. We could get it used. This is these risk factors before and after the, the intervention. So this, I'm sorry that the white doesn't really show up. This is the chair stand test, the dynamic gait index the Berg balance test the tug and the ABC questionnaire the balance confidence questionnaire and so there's a lot of comparisons on that you could make on this basically the pre values in the two groups were the same not surprising they were randomized the post values on all these tests were better in both groups standard group and the active step group and the difference in the post things were no different, right? They were the same. All these tests improved in both groups the same amount. So getting on the active step didn't change any of these values compared to standard treatment, although we don't really know, right? We know they're not significantly anything different, but it's a small pilot. And here's the three-month follow-up falls. So this is the standard physical therapy group. At three months, a third of them fell third of them had a fall. In the active step group, 19% of them had a fall. So about a 33% reduction in falls. Not significant. In falls with injury, 18% of the group had a fall with injury at three months. In the standard group, 8% in the active step group, about a 60% reduction in the risk of fall with injury. Not significantly different. So. I challenge anybody try to get this published.
2: <laughs>
1: not only will they tell you you've got to define what a trip and the slip is biomechanically, but they're gonna say, but it's a negative study. It's like it's not a negative study, it's a pilot study. It showed we can get it in the clinic, it shows that it works, it shows people will do it. And maybe it works. We should do a study. A 60% reduction, that's worth studying. Right? So it's not easy, but it can be done. It was published. Randomization between these two interventions is acceptable to a majority of patients. It's clinically feasible. And the results are promising in their longer-term study. And we just, we just so there were 60-some people in that group. We did a calculation. We decided that we needed somewhere between 500 and 1,000 patients in a large study to have power to detect an important difference. So, that was the pilot that was done in 2007, published in 2013, that can tell you something. (laughs) (laughs) So here's 2013, this is an intervention by the group out in Chicago, um, where they did this training. Here's a control group of 80 people, trained on the active step, um, and then looked at falls. I think, I'm pretty sure this was at three months, again. Um, And what they found, so this is a relatively small study, not powered by our calculation to really see a difference. Um, And it was designed differently because they're biomechanists, and they're really interested in biomechanics, and they're really interested in a design that makes sense to them. I'm unfettered by that. (laughs) So all, all cause falls... So the first thing is that it was not all falls. It was what they categorized as avoidable falls. 64% in the control group, 49% in the train group, no difference. Trip-related falls, 31% versus 17%, which was statistically significantly different. And non-trip-related falls were no different. And trip-related stumbles were no different. And so this is useful information. It's actually very informative and important. But it makes me nervous. And the reason it makes me nervous is because I always worry about deciding what's an avoidable fall, and particularly in saying, well, this fall was trip related and that fall was not trip related by sort of talking to people. And I mean, this is right, from a biomechanical view, the right way to do it, right? Because you think that you're intervening on trip related falls, you should measure trip related falls. It's just that it's hard, and there's subjectivity involved in whether it was, was or wasn't trip-related. And so this is important. It's good, actually, that it didn't decrease non related falls. That just shows maybe it's a specific effect. It's a little unnerving to me, although maybe very informative, that trip-related stumbles were not increased. So we weren't turning trip-related falls into stumble is where you sort of do this, but you don't fall. So we're not turning a trip-related fall into a trip-related stumble. So if we're not doing that, it's a little unclear what we're doing to reduce the trip-related falls. But maybe that's accident, and maybe that's really important information and nobody knows yet. So that was all the lead-up. Now I'm going to take that to trial. So we did that pilot with Synergy Funding. And then we applied to AHRQ, and we got funded to do a five-year multicenter RCT, the design very similar to the pilot. Comparative effectiveness, as best we could, all comers, trained the physical therapists and turned them loose and let them practice as they would in practice. There were eight sites: Cheshire Medical Center, front and rehab of British Medical Center, Concord Hospital, DHMC. The Elliott Hospital, Newton Wellesley, South Shore Neurologic Associates down on Long Island, Spaulding Rehab in, uh, outside Boston, and White River Junction, VA. So these are all places that either had these machines, had purchased these machines because they thought it was a good thing to do, or the study bought a couple and a couple got lent to us by the manufacturer for the period of the study. And this is the design, a couple differences from the pilot. One is that we set, in the pilot, we just took anybody who was referred. Um, in this one, we set parameters for high risk of falling so that we only had high risk people. So the tug had to be greater than 13 and a half, DGI less than 19, Berg less than 50, or their ABC was less than 67%, or they had a fall in the last year. And that's actually a big deal. So in the falls stuff now, what people are finding is that people who are at high risk to fall who don't fall are probably different than people who are either at high risk or not high risk to fall and do fall. The fallers may be different than people who are high risk to fall but don't fall. And so they're referred for therapy. They have this assessment to see that they qualify. And by the way, the, the cutoffs for Parkinson's are lower because Parkinson's patients are at such high risk to fall right so you need a lower bar to assume that they're at high risk to fall they had to be over 65 if they couldn't use the treadmill obviously they couldn't be in it again we got rid of the vertigo patients and so they were eligible they didn't foreign consent and then were randomized they had treatment for whatever period of time the therapist thought they should have treatment for when they were done with treatment the therapist let us know and that's when we started the clock to measure for three months whether they fell. In the pilot, we just started the clock when they started treatment, right? And so the treatment period and the follow-up period were kind of mixed together, which has some complications to it. So we got rid of that in the full study and had a clean end of treatment and started the follow-up. And this is sort of the first three months of the study. I had one of these for the full year and realized there's absolutely no way anyone's going to be able to read anything so this is just the first three months. So we screened 1,517 patients, of whom 674 were eligible. So now we're less all-comers than our pilot because we had these criteria, right? the fall risk criteria. So 843 patients were eligible. 336 declined. 283 just weren't interested in the study. They didn't want to get called. They didn't want to fill out questionnaires. They, didn't wanna, they just wanted... To get this therapy and go home. So we had 500 at the end of the study. We had 507 who were randomized: 254 in active step, 253 the standard therapy. Between randomization and their start of treatment, seven withdrew from the active step, eight withdrew from the standard treatment, and two in the active step group died before they got to treatment. So 245 received treatment, 245. In both groups received treatment Of the 245 people at randomized to active step, 222 of them actually got on the machine, and about what is that? 23 of them said, so, uh, okay, I'm in study, but I don't want to get on that thing. I don't blame. You, <laughs> you saw those videos of the frail Elder for those that didn't know it was me. <laughs> By the time I got done shooting those videos) I was sweating and sore. This is not easy, right? This is like full body. You talk about full body work, this is a full body workout. Getting knocked off balance and trying not to fall down is a full body workout. And for 83-year-old frail people like, ah, I don't want to do that. That's scary. So and then their treatment, and then here's three months. Between the end of treatment and three months, about 30 people in each group withdrew. Five and three died. So, this is mostly here. Part of it's there because it's a concert table and you have to see it and not show it to you, and it's important for figuring out whether the trial is worthwhile. But what it reminds me to tell you, if you haven't figured it out already, we had an unbelievably frail population that we studied in this. Two people died before they got to the treatment, and in three months after their treatment, eight of them had died. These are very old, very frail people and that's part takes me back to what I said in the beginning every time people study falls what we realize is we're not doing a very good job of finding these people and getting them to treatment early
0: we send them after
1: they fall and broke their hip or fall and almost broke their hip Um, and and we didn't go and beat the bushes for these people these are people who got to physical therapy so this is partly a look into the way our system is working now in terms of getting people to physical therapy and it's not working great by the time they get there, they're really frail. But be that as it may, again, this is the treatment in the two groups. So the active step, the standard treatment, mean number of sessions. For the active step group was 10.43. And in the standard group, 10.42, exactly the same. Right? And we didn't control that. The range was 1 to 80 and 1 to 50. So some people were getting a lot of physical therapy and other people, not so much. And then in the active step group, we looked at how many of the PT sessions they actually got on the active step machine. And it was about half, right? five, average of five. So 10 sessions, 11 sessions, and five of them they were on the machine. The other five they were doing standard treatment. And it varied from one to 25. And one person in the standard group got on the active step machine, either because they cajoled the therapist into getting a monitor or they forgot which group they were in and got it on. They only got one session, so not too bad. And here's the baseline characteristics. So the average age was 78. 53% of them were male, which is, I find very interesting. 53% had fallen in the past three months, and 70% had fallen in the last year. So most of the people actually qualified for the study because they were fallers, not because they were just at high risk. And that, again, is probably because that's the trigger that most people have for sending them to physical therapy. And then the average TUG score was 14.6. Quorum had HIPAA, 40% had NeoA, 13% were Parkinson's, 15% were post-stroke as sort of the thing that was leading to their high risk. This is a big table, don't try to read the numbers. The, The point of this is the same as from the pilot. The score, the risk factor scores were the same at baseline in both groups because they were randomized, they improved in both groups because they all got physical therapy, and there was no difference in the improvement in the risk factors between the two groups. Right? The tug and all that stuff improved the same in both groups. So here's the three-month outcome of falls for patients. Here are the second group of people in the world that has seen this data. The Welsh Center down at Johns Hopkins saw it a couple months ago. So falls, 33% in the standard group, 28% in the, actually 36% unadjusted in the standard group, 28% in the active step group, uh, 30, 23% relative risk reduction, P.07. So not quite statistically significant. And when you adjust for baseline, you get about the same thing, about a 20% reduction not statistically significant for falls, but close. If you remember, we looked at, we thought we needed between five hundred thousand and patients. We had about 507, just because it was hard to get people into the study. We're um, on. Falls with injury. So if you remember, in the pilot, about a 25% reduction and a 30% reduction in falls, a 60% reduction in falls with injury. So here's falls with injury, 13% unadjusted, In the standard group, 6%. In the active step group, about a 60% risk reduction in falls with injury at three months. When you adjust, it gets a little bigger. And the p-value is 0.003. So highly significant reduction in falls with injury, a borderline reduction in falls. So that's interesting. And there's a couple reasons that that may be. One is it's chance finding. There's a three in a thousand chance it's just chance that the falls of the injury are reduced. Alternatively, it may be that what you're doing with this training is you're, you're you know, there's some falls that are just sort of going to happen, your little falls. And that what you're doing is you're preventing the big falls that cause the fractures and the injuries. And these were significant injuries. Most of them ended up in the ED and a number of them ended up hospitalized. So it may be that the falls that you're reducing are preferentially the bad ones. It may be that you're taking some falls that would have been bad falls, right, like going down hard and turning into falls where you almost recover and go down easy and don't hurt yourself. We don't know. So three possibilities, but a highly significant reduction in falls with injury. And then you guys are the first people in the world to see this, because I just saw this myself five days ago, which is the one-year survival analysis. So we know at three months, there was a not quite statistically significant difference in falls, and the question was from the pilot, it looked like there may be an effect of three months. Does that wear off? When does it wear off? Do you have to get people back so often? So what this shows is that for fall-free survival, and that's the active step group, and that's the standard group, so it looks like there is a small, not statistically significant, but persistent reduction in the risk of falls, but not significant. So that may all just be due to chance. And this is for injury. And so you see this early three months, statistically significant, highly statistically significant reduction in falls with injury at three months. And out to a year, it's not statistically significant anymore. But it doesn't seem to be because the, they close a little bit right there. And maybe that's real. But the significance is mostly because the follow up out at a year in this highly frail group was not Great, a lot of people died. A lot of people ended up in nursing homes that couldn't answer the questions anymore. So, in summary, this study looked at task-specific training with surface perturbation, and it seems to have significant effects on balancing gait biomechanics from prior studies. And the inclusion of this training in multimodal physical therapy appears to dramatically reduce injurious falls and greater than its risk on the risk factors for falls and falls themselves. <coughs> and then I left time for questions.
0: You know, I have a question, Terry, maybe I started off, and that is, did you see gender-specific differences? And do we have this number of subjects to be able to say something about that? And as you're answering that, you'll probably get to the issue that you thought it was interesting that it was 53% men. Were women more likely not to participate and, and, and more likely since it's a frail-elderly group more women in that group?
1: Yeah. Um, so great question. And uh, the answer is we haven't looked yet at gender-specific or disease-specific or age-specific uh, things because I've had this overall data for about a week. Um, So those are all interesting. Yeah. I've been working on budgets. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, so the answer is we don't know. We want to look at at all those things. Um, So it it leads me to say a couple things. So one is, yes, I mean, I think that the 53% men was interesting to me because the population at this age is more women. And so the, we don't know and haven't looked yet at um, the gender differences and whether this is a bias in referrals to physical therapy, and that's the population that's ending up at the physical therapist, or whether it, it had to do with biases in a willingness to participate, You know, whether they were more likely to be freaked out by the machine or not. We don't know. But it's, we're going to look at all that stuff.
2: Uh, Um, Let's see, I'm an unofficial representative of Kendall at Hanover. Yes. Retirement community up the road and um, our average age of population is about 85. So it's a good elderly community and about, oh, I would say um, almost three quarters are in independent living. I have no idea how many falls occurred. But you every week or two you see one of your fellow community members with a black and blue face. Yeah. And falling on the face is really a, a very common problem. Yes. Particularly amongst the Parkinson's patients, as you know yes. as you know. But in looking at your data and your study, it's largely what I would consider a Uh, secondary prevention trial, patients are referred for a specific reason. The Chicago study that you pointed out, and I think about 38%, looked like they had had falls and the other not, so it may have been a mix of a primary and a secondary prevention study. But the question is how how the training would work uh, if you were to do a primary prevention trial. And my main comment is if I look at those last two graphs, it looks to me like the training effect doesn't persist. The two curves stay apart but they're parallel. Mm-hmm. So after that three month yep. follow up period, it looks like the training effect where it has worn off. Yep. Is that a reasonable interpretation?
1: Yes. So that is a that is a reasonable interpretation. So a couple things. Um, so leaving the realm of data and going to speculation. The biomechanics and the epidemiology and everything suggests to me that this should work as well or better as primary prevention than as secondary prevention. Um, it's just a lot harder to study, because for primary prevention, you'd need 3,000 people to, to see the effect. Um, the second thing is that is a very reasonable and probably the most reasonable interpretation of those survival graphs, that there's a difference early on, and then that difference persists, but doesn't widen. So it's not an ongoing protection, but it also doesn't close, which is one important thing. Um, and that actually is consistent with other findings of gait and balance interventions, which showed that they seem to, um, the effect seems to wear off after about three to four months. Mu- I think it's four months, um, is sort of the standard in therapy. And, and probably a uh, booster shot uh, paradigm is probably warranted for most, whether it's using this or just going to physical therapist probably makes sense, depending on the population and how much they're able to do ongoing therapy on their own, right? Or, you know, are still doing Tai Chi classes or they're doing their own stuff. For those people that aren't doing that, having them come back for training probably makes sense for any intervention and probably is also true for this.
2: Rich and then Kathy. which on this really interesting stuff. I really admire the fact that you tried to make it practical. But part of the problem is that not all physical therapists are the same. Yes, and sir. I have different people there. So did you look at that, and did you? How did you homogenize that in your design? Yeah.
1: Um, so we did not homogenize that in our design. Um, that is one, along with the gender, disease state, and other things. So the. Is looking by center, um, particularly with that right issue of how good are how good is the standard intervention at different places, and how much does that matter, right? The you know one one potential right for an intervention like this is it is pretty standard. Like you put the person on the thing, and you have. You said level one, level two, level three, and you do it, right? And you might be able to achieve those results without a dawn, right? In places that you could put it in senior centers and you could get it out in the community, and just you don't need a, but right, you might not need a trained physical therapist to do this, right? You could do it with lower level personnel and let the machine do some of the work that the therapist has to do in terms of figuring out exactly how to do the intervention. But that's all. Speculation. But we haven't looked by center, but we plan to do that for the probably four centers that have enough people that we could actually see an effect, and we'll probably lump the others together. But yes, that's the, right, the trade off of this sort of design. Um, it's not what could be, it's sort of, but then again, for me, that's right. the right answer. Uh, what, what this answer is for me. Right, is not the question of, you know what's the, if I'm necessarily Don a Pigeon, what's the best way for me to do this patient? Should I put them on the machine or not? But what this study is really designed to answer is, if you're running a rehab department and you want to prevent falls, should you get this machine and have it available for your therapists or not? That, right, That's the intervention. You put the machine in the thing and tell them, use it or don't use it. And that was the intervention, not a specific protocol. Now the fun part. Now, anybody interested? Lots of questions left, mm-hmm. right? This is in general. This seems to work. Who does it work best in? Is there a specific way to do it in Parkinson's or in hip or the, like? There's about 50 studies to do now. for This. So anybody who wants some grant money?
2: <laughs>
1: happy to talk to you. Um, right, to, to go back and do all that refining and figure out the subgroups and stuff. But for me, it's much more interesting to pursue that now that I know I'm not wasting my time on something that might or might not work. I'm pretty convinced it works. Let's take
0: Kathy uh, then, Harley.
2: Great talk, Jen. Thanks. Good work. Uh, two related questions. One, do you have a sense of what the emotional impact is on people to go through this
1: um, sort of that looks a little bit traumatic
2: and do you um, Have evidence that both populations are staying equally active after they've been through the training.
1: Yeah um, No, and no So we don't really know uh, Donna knows you can ask Donna. i I'm, I guarantee you she knows um, I haven't talked to her about what was it like for you. Oh It's fun, <laughs> but it was it's hard. I mean it, it wasn't traumatic because, and you you know, one of the things is you really are very safe in that thing. And, and I suspect that when Donna does it with more frail elders than me, she probably has them do stuff like, just, right, just do that. But show them, right, what, right? Take your weight off and you just hang in the thing and it's like you're not gonna fall, you're not gonna hurt yourself. Um, so I think emotionally, I suspect that she probably was good at that approach that's what professionals who are really good do it but it's physically it's hard I mean physically it's tiring Um, and I think that and that's probably why they didn't do it every time right they did about half the time Um, the second question was uh, do we know about their activity levels and the answer to that is no Um, we have so the other flip side of this trial of the comparative effectiveness, sort of this pragmatic design is we did not get extensive data in follow-up um, we called them every three months and found out if they fell and if they were hurt and a couple other things we did not have big long questionnaires for them to fill out um, and I was there's two reasons for that one is because we probably would have lost a lot more people if we were getting a lot of data on them and two is this was done on a really bare bones budget and so we just wanted the big – it's more like a you know, large, simple trial. Just get the data on falls, and that's what we care about, and not a whole lot of other stuff. All that other stuff, that's all these follow-on studies. What is the emotional impact? Does it affect how active they stay? All that kind of stuff. It out for yeah,
2: and I'm sorry. This is
1: the last question, but uh, yeah. I just wanted to ask whether you have any financial relationships with a company that will be making this device. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, um, I have none. Um, and the the bad news is the device isn't currently being made. Um, which, no, which, which is actually a real problem, right? So the the issue is. For small companies that make medical devices, particularly, and this, you know, this is a big complex device, this is, they cost a lot of money. Holding them in inventory costs a lot of money. To, to, for them to wait for the standard cycle of proof is really hard, right? To sort of sit around and wait for 10 years for Dr. Lurie to f- do some big study funded by the NIH before, right, before you, right, and then probably wait another year and a half for the paper to get published and then probably, I don't know, what does the data say, eight years after that for people to take, take it up in practice? Like, that's a that's a long cycle that is not financially viable for one in rehab space where the markets aren't big and for small companies, which is why most of the stuff is done by... Companies who you know they don't even see it, then not even make a line out of them on their budget for 10 years, and then and maybe it hits big or it doesn't hit big. Um, but so, I have no financial interest in this at all. Um, I just wanted to know if it worked. Yeah.
2: <coughs> Thanks. One oh, last quick question, Dr. One last
1: I look forward to the day when we see these steps in every rehab facility, but in the meantime, yeah, can we? I think primary prevention is very important. Yeah. If we refer our elderly patients to rehab, to PT now, will Medicare cover that for primary prevention, or do we have to wait till they fall and just recommend aerobics and tai
2: chi in the meantime?
1: Yeah. So, that's a great question. The answer is, um, it is. So I, two things I probably should say. So one, it's it is FDA approved device. It's out in clinical practice. Um, there's not a separate billing code for this, but it's part of, right. I don't know how much you know about PT billing codes, this is therax in 15 minutes intervals. So therapeutic exercise. Yeah.
2: I just want to say, so I coordinate the interdisciplinary falls clinic here out of internal medicine, and not only will Medicare pay for one session, one complete session of physical therapy, they will pay for multiple sessions throughout the year, so frail older adults should probably be referred to physical therapy three times a year. Yeah. So it's not just a, okay, let's fix the problem, move on. It has to be with this repetitive dose, and Medicare absolutely pays for
1: it. Yeah, so Medicare pays for the physical therapy intervention, and this is or isn't done by the therapist during the session. and The indip- mm-hmm. billing is independent of that, right? So you have your 45-minute or 30-minute session, and you either get on the machine or you don't, You build for therapeutic exercise for the period of time you're in physical therapy. So, yes, if you refer your flare elderly to the Falls Clinic, they'll see Donna. If if she thinks they'll benefit from the machine, she'll get on the machine and do the rest of the stuff she does, and their lives will be better.